welcome to episode 13 of Anatomy of Guitar Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to discuss burnout and techniques that we can use to avoid feeling like we keep running in circles chasing our tails or the frustration that happens when we feel like we haven't created anything new in a while and have plateaued. I'm going to give some tips in playing and odd time signatures for drummers and instrumentalists of all type and why playing in odd time signatures can actually really improve your playing in standard time signatures such as 4-4. We're going to take a quick peek at Lookout Cleveland from The Band, one of my favorite band songs and it has some real interesting counterpoint that happens between the bass drum and bass guitar which I want to talk about. I had recorded this segment before Robbie Robertson had passed and think about the band often. I had played with Amy Helm for a number of years and I uh, sat in a couple of times with Levon Helm from the band and it was a pretty amazing experience. It was pretty close to that camp and got fairly close to that music. So it was sad to see the passing of Robbie and just contributed and, and wrote a lot of really great music. Lastly, we're going to look at the Analog Man Beano Boost, which is a recreation of the Dallas Rangemaster treble booster circuit. I'm going to talk about what makes this circuit so special, as well as give us some audio examples so you can become familiar with the magic of this circuit. A student brought in the song Lookout Cleveland from the band's Brown album this week, and it brought up a really interesting point about the interplay between bass guitar and bass drum. If you haven't dug into the music of the band, I encourage you to check out music from Big Pink, Stage Fright, and the Brown Album. Those are my three favorite albums from the band, and you'll find a lot of really interesting songwriting techniques used by Robbie Robertson, but also the choices that Levon Helm, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, Rink Danko made on the recordings are pretty exquisite. They all had such really unique characteristics in their personalities and in their choices of sounds and the way that they made music and they all seem to really shine and work so well together their chemistry musically was one of a kind a student brought lookout cleveland in to learn on guitar and i just was getting very distracted by the bass guitar and the bass drum pattern because it was so interesting and i wanted to talk about it in some rock music there's a mindset that the bass drum and the bass guitar are coupled at all times and they match their patterns and this actually works really great you'll hear tom petty and there's some bands that treat the bass guitar that way. It plays mostly just root notes and matches the exact pattern in the bass drum. And they're unified and that can sound really great. But there are other times where this can sound a little too static and you want more movement. And look out Cleveland, I think around the minute and a half mark or anywhere the verses are happening, you really hear a counterpoint happening between the bass guitar and the bass drum. So Rick Danko's bass and Levon Helm's drums and his bass drum. What happens is sometimes they're, they're, they're coupled and they're playing together, they're unified. And other times they split apart from each other. So you hear them each playing when the other one isn't playing. You know, they have some individuality to it, which is the main concept behind counterpoint to have independence to each line. So this doesn't just have to be, say, in a string section. We could have independence and lines in the different instruments of a rock band, bass and drums, or bass and bass drum, for example, is a really cool place to look at having some independence. Now, if you're doing it all the time and they're never coupled, it potentially can sound a little chaotic, but picking the times where you want them to have independence can be really effective. And you'll hear Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker have this interplay in their music and 
unlike, let's say, the, the music of Bach or different people from the Baroque period, the band and the uh, cream tended to be a little bit more improvisational. But it's hard to say, actually, how much Danko and Helm uh, worked out those parts beforehand, uh, how much they discussed it, or if it was just a spoken thing, or they just naturally played that way off each other. It would be interesting to know that. To me, it's become such an important part of the song. There's definitely a lot of those, those underlying characters, like their personalities are coming out so clearly at that moment. I'll include a YouTube link on my website. If you go to Anatomy of Guitar Tone, in the menu tab, you click on Anatomy of Tone. That's where I'm putting a lot of blog posts that are filling in some information that I've talked about in the podcast. On there, if you look at the YouTube video I'll post at minute 140 is where another verse starts in Lookout Cleveland. Just listen to the conversation that's happening between the bass drum and the bass guitar and how it really makes the groove feel really bouncy because of the way they're, they're filling in each other's gaps. I find with a lot of producers, well, not so much the hip hop producers because there's a lot of emphasis on the low end, the bass drum or the bass note, if they're using an 808. But in a lot of other forms of pop music, rock music, the bass and the bass drum are two of the places that get neglected the most. People sometimes, I think, just think of them as, as unimportant. But I find that although they don't get noticed up front as much as you think, they really carry a lot of weight in the undercurrent and the statement of the song. So looking at some different ways that you can treat the way that the conversation is happening in the low end and the relationship between the bass drum and the bass guitar can be a really effective way to take a song that you feel like just feels too static or too uh, choppy, I would say, when the bass drum and the bass guitar it feels like there's too much space and it's too wide open. Using some counterpoint between the bass and the bass guitar can really fill in some of that space and not make it feel so uh, robotic. One question I get a lot is regarding hitting roadblocks and why maybe somebody feels like they're stuck and how to eliminate that frustration. I'll give you a little of my background. So I started out primarily being self-taught, except for taking some drum lessons for a fairly short period of time just to learn how to read drum notation. And then went through long stretches without taking lessons at all, eventually coming to New York City and learning a lot from playing with amazing musicians. Eventually I started studying with instructors. I sought out some very specific instructors and started studying deeply with them. So I have a perspective from being self-taught, from being taught by people. And I made some really interesting observations about that, as well as reading about the research from scientists on the way the brain works and learning works. And it was interesting. And earlier on, I was encouraged not to take lessons. It was frowned upon in the environment I was in. I was living with a, a narcissist who was somewhat of a musician and was always just preaching the idea that you shouldn't take lessons. You're gonna they're gonna make you sound like them. It'll change and you won't be creative anymore. And I gotta say firsthand that that was a lie and not the truth. 
I was discouraged for a number of years from studying. I wanted to study piano. I wanted to study jazz guitar. It was kind of a complicated situation, which is too much to get into now. I have a visual disability that didn't allow me to be independent where I was living when I was younger. I was kind of cut off and really couldn't just make my own decisions even about, well, I'm just going to study this anyway. So uh, a kind of complicated situation. So I was self-taught for a lot of those years. And I read a lot of books and listened to a lot of music and experimented a lot. I would hit walls and get frustrated a lot. Sometimes it would last days and I'd get burnt out and just couldn't figure out why. And I even had questions, a lot of questions, actually. I was running through scales or modes and I feel I didn't learn to use a lot of skills effectively until many, many years later. I knew they existed. I knew what they were, but I collected them and had them in a glass case and really didn't know like how to apply them in real world situations. So my learning process was incomplete. Eventually, after moving to New York, I wanted to find a more effective way of learning didn't want to hit walls anymore and get stuck. This led me to digging into research on learning as well as finding some instructors. There were some really important things I learned through that process. One, the rate of improvement that I was seeing from studying with a mentor was substantially more than practicing on my own for a number of reasons. One of them being is when you're on your own, you're a bit of an echo chamber and you're only hearing what you can do and what you think you should do. Studying with a mentor who is better than you can see ahead of the trail and they know what's coming. So they can help direct you. They could give you positive feedback, which is just as important as the negative feedback, which is also hard to get as an individual. As an individual teaching yourself, you're mostly going to be giving yourself negative feedback. So you're not really getting rewarded as much when you're doing well, which is also important. Also, not to mention the time saving factor of studying with a mentor that can really cut you're learning more than in half. It's been pretty incredible when I've based the rate that I've been learning these days compared to when I was younger. Now, I do have a lot more associations with music, so it's a little easier for me to connect new concepts with concepts I've already learned. I'm not starting from a blank slate, but still the idea that somebody is laying out a form for me and knows the shortest route to get from point A to point B with is saving me so much frustration. One of the points I learned about getting stuck and stagnated is you always need a steady flow of fresh water to come in to your water source. You you don't want stagnated water. We always have to be learning something new. There's been research that has said that somebody who just keeps doing the same thing over and over again without any new challenges stays the same no matter what, like, and sometimes can even decline a little bit. So the idea of I'm just going to play guitar every day and I'll get better just by playing the songs that I play doesn't really work. I think that's something I used to think when I was younger, it would work. But a lot of recent research from scientists and psychologists are saying that that is not actually the case. So 
You're not going to magically get better just by playing the same songs over and over again. You need to be incorporating challenges all the time, but not too difficult of challenges. So that's the catch too. And that's where having a mentor or a teacher really helps is that they can see where you're at and they can understand how much new information you can take to keep things moving forward. So you always have fresh water intake into your lake or wherever your pond that you have your musical pond. If you're doing this on a regular basis, you're a lot less likely and almost very unlikely to experience burnout because there's always fresh things happening that you might feel frustrated sometimes because you may not be picking something up as fast as you would like it or what your perception is of the right time for you to grow. But you will constantly be growing and you won't hit those points where you don't feel like you're doing anything new or growing. So I've been through it. I've been teaching myself and sometimes gone through long stretches where I just felt like I haven't gotten better. And I know I just thought one day I'd, with modes, for instance, I knew the modes and I didn't really effectively know how to use them. I would just play and, and think that someday just by playing what I was currently working on was just going to show me the light to incorporate the modes, but it never did. I never learned how to use them in context of the music I was playing because I wasn't being challenged or shown the ways to incorporate them and have a counterbalance there with my experimentation, what works or what doesn't work. When I started studying with people and they started spotting me on some of these concepts, it was then that I finally started to seek growth and be able to actively use them in a lot of musical situations. If you're feeling stuck and burnout, it's likely that you are not in implementing enough new material or challenges into your practice routine, but you can't just do it randomly. And this is another thing about progress is that studying with somebody, and I'm not just trying to advertise my lessons here. You can study with me and be more than glad to talk about lessons, or you can study with somebody else. The thing is to find somebody that you connect with that is a lot better than you and is an expert that can lay out pretty much like a, a trail for you. They're, they're, gonna, they're your trail guide and they're going to lead you to the top of the mountain. Oh, that's such a cheesy saying, isn't it? The top of the mountain, it just, uh, it came out. So I apologize for my cheesiness there. But, I mean, I wouldn't say there's ever a real finish line, but they're going to be your trail guide to a never ending journey to just get better and explore and be able to accomplish new techniques or understand new points of theory or compose in a new style. And this is only one aspect of learning, of course, in future podcasts, I'm going to dig more into how I set up my practice routine and other elements. But the first thing is making sure that you're always learning something new and you're studying with somebody. A lot of studies have shown that the difference between progress from people that have a great trainer if you think of Olympic athletes or ballerinas or uh, a lot of classical musicians are great to look at this because although I have issues sometimes with the way that education is taught and, and treated in the classical realm, it's almost militant sometimes. And I don't agree with a lot of that, but having a consistent training has been shown to lead to quick, consistent growth. If you think about it, imagine an Olympic diver learning how to maneuver and, and do all those dives on their own without somebody being there to help correct them or to keep them on or keep them from injuring themselves. It doesn't seem likely in that world. It seems 
very common that we would understand. Of course, they have a trainer, right? In sports and football, we have trainers. Sometimes in music, it's become cool to pretend that you don't have a trainer and you don't have to have training to have great ideas or to create great music. But having a trainer really helps you execute those ideas and stay consistent about it and not get burnout. out. A lot of people that hit writer's block are hitting writer's block because of lack of counterpoint, right? Something in their life that is challenging them or is bringing them new insights or uh, being inquisitive about taking their skills to a different level. I believe that often when people are talking about feeling or going through bouts of writer's block, that it has to do with the lack of growth that they're in that moment. And they're not often doing the right steps to help them to keep from being burnout or have writer's block, which is make sure that you're on a consistent schedule and training with somebody to just allow yourself to keep challenging yourself and, and bring new ideas in and expose yourself to more art. Pretty much it means that your tank is empty and you're running on fumes. So how do you get more gas into the tank? And just as I was explaining, there are methods to do that. Well, having a mentor or teacher, same thing, essentially, if you're working with an expert, is going to solve a lot of these problems for you and allow you to progress at a much more consistent rate. Even when being an expert in an area, it's still very much in, in your favor to study with somebody. I've been a professional guitar player for a number of years and I get hired to do a lot of you know, higher profile gigs or sessions. And I tell you, I still study with a couple of different teachers because I'm still trying to evolve and I want to embrace new ideas and keep pushing the boundaries. And I don't want to just keep cycling or stay where I am. I want to explore new areas. The best way to do that, no matter how much experience you have, is to keep digging in, keep asking questions, find people that know things that you don't know extremely well, right? And study. Lately, when I've been working out on drums, I've been working on some exercises that are pushing my brain to think more in odd time signatures. One of the reasons I'm doing this is to strengthen my counting in 4-4 four, four time. And just because we're practicing in 5-4, doesn't mean that we're going to ignore 4-4 four, four, or if we only play 4-4 four, four music, that practicing odd time signatures will not help us there. And polyrhythms and, um, and just being able to count and keep track of what we're playing more. So what do I mean by that? Well, one thing is when we're practicing only in 4-4, four, four, I think because we get so comfortable with 4-4 four, four time because it's the mainstay of most popular music in America and the UK, we start to daydream and lose track of where we are. The advantage to practicing with odd time signatures is it forces you to have a little more focus and concentration about where you are. It'd be easy to fall off and, and then not be able to uh, recover so quickly as if we got distracted playing in 4-4. I decided to devise some variations in a drum groove 
to push my counting more and that means sometimes even straying from the two three count that's in five four time or three two count and putting stress on beats that might not normally get stress on in those time signatures this doesn't just apply to drums we can apply these techniques to guitar the beauty about drums is it's the core of every instrument really because every instrument at its base has to deal with rhythm if we study rhythm we study drums we're going to strengthen our abilities to be more capable on other instruments so if you listen to these exercises you can try strumming these on guitar and just displacing where the accent are where you're hitting the guitar strings drums are just a great place to demonstrate these examples let's listen to example one One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. I'm observing the two strongest parts of that measure where I'm laying down the most stress on the notes to be on the downbeat on one. And then on beat four, it's where I'm hitting a snare drum. So it's like one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One way to count five, four would be to think of a count of three and a count of two. There's definitely a three, two undercurrent underneath this groove. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. I'm stressing it on beat one, I'm stressing it on beat four. So it's almost like breaking apart the chunk of three and the chunk of two. Example two. Five, one, two, three, four, five. Again, this is a three-two dissection of the five-four bar. I'm feeling three beats and then two beats. Now, what I'm doing is I'm doing a snare drum on one, a bass drum on two, a snare on three. So the first half of the measure is where a lot of the accents are lying. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. So we could think of it being top-heavy. We're going to take the same groove, but add one more bass drum into it and an open hi-hat. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. You can count this as a split of a three count and a two count. To me, because of the addition of the new bass drum, it almost feels like a count of four and one additional beat. One, two, three, four. Five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. It's important no matter what time signature you're playing in to get a feel for what the pulse is. Find out what beats are being stressed because you're going to want to live in those accents. I'm going to add a little more subdivision into the drums. I'm going to use some ghost strokes on the snare drum just to make the pattern a little busier. For this last example, I'm going to put a lot of stress on beat four with a snare drum and an open hi-hat. So you notice I'm doing different mixtures of where the bass drum is landing, where the snare drum is landing, and where I'm using the open hi-hat to add its own punctuation. We have four colors to use for this groove. We have a closed hi-hat, we have an open hi-hat, we have a bass drum, and we have a snare drum. The idea is to move them around, pair them up, split them up, accent on different beats, try to think as many different, try to think of as many different variations as you can to destabilize or stabilize the groove and make sure that you can have equal footing in either circumstance. 
one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. So try some examples of your own where you're playing a groove in 5-4. Try not to make it too complicated because at first you really just want to focus on counting. Maybe even just stress beat one or um, beat four or just really, really straightforward and try to keep your concentration going and think of the different colors you have that you can use to stress those beats. In this week's Pedal Chemistry, we're going to talk about the range master effect. And in specific, we're going to talk about Analog Man's Bino Boost, which is a recreation of the Dallas Range Master, which is one of the earliest treble booster units. So let's first talk about what a treble booster is. The name alone, I think, confuses a lot of people because although it's called a treble booster, more appropriately, I think it would be called a mid-booster. Now, a lot of amps that were made in the early 60s tended to be dark, which is interesting because nowadays we associate a lot of those amps with being bright. Fox amps being bright and jangly, Marshall amps being bright and jangly. But early models of the AC30, AC15, early models of the Marshall, they tended to be pretty dark amps. So the Range Master was created to get more clarity and definition out of the amplifier as well as push the front end. So it is a boost pedal and it not only adds gain, it also really changes the frequency curve. One way it deals with this is cutting out low end and boosting the mids, which through a dark amp gives the illusion that it's boosting the treble, although it's not really a great name for the pedal because it isn't directly boosting the treble. Original range masters were built in a box enclosure that sat on top of your amp and there was even a fixed cable in the back of it that would go into the input of your amplifier. So you would plug your guitar into the range master box and it would go into your amp. Now, it wasn't an effect that you turned on and off and quite honestly, it still isn't really an effect you wanna do that with because it adds so much gain to your signal the difference in volume between clean and where you would set the range master to really get your amp cooking would be a too considerable of a difference to use in a live setting. So a lot of people that use the range masters tend to get them set up with the amplifier and just leave it on the whole gig. So it becomes part of your sound, which is why the original range master units were a box that sat on top of your amp because even by design, they knew that this wasn't going to be an effect that was going to be turned on and off between a verse and a chorus. The original range masters had one germanium transistor in it. It was either an OC44 or an OC71. Very simple circuit. In fact, it's there's not much to it. But just because it's simple, don't let it deceive you. It's a pretty magical pedal when it comes to getting classic guitar tone. Now, there were a couple variations of the range master that existed. There was a company called Hornby Skews that made a Rangemaster style pedal. And this is actually the one that was used on Jethro Tull's Aqualung record, which was a melody maker Gibson, which had the P90 in it, into the Hornby Skews. 
into a high watt amp. That distorted sound we hear had a lot to do with the interaction between the P90, the treble booster, and then the amplifier. And you get this punchy, almost on the edge of feedback, attack sustain sound that is just pretty amazing and took me years to figure out what it was. I always thought there was something special about the guitar tone on Aqualung and the playing is fantastic itself, but there was just something in the sound that I couldn't put my finger on. A regular fuzz pedal wouldn't do it. A distortion pedal wouldn't do it. Just plugging an amp and turning it all the way up wasn't quite getting that exact sound. And eventually I discovered that a treble booster was at the core of that sound. The treble booster was also at the core of Tommy Iommi's sound in Black Sabbath. Now, it is said that people believe his range master was modified to be full range, so it didn't cut out the bass range like a lot of traditional treble boosters did. Now, it boosted the mids, but it also kept the lows intact, which seems to make sense when you hear the Black Sabbath sound. It's definitely not a traditional distortion sound, and he played through Laney amps, but that wasn't the sound of the Laney amps alone either. So an SG with humbuckers into his full range, range master into the Laney amps cranked probably is how he got that sound. Other users of the range master circuit were Brian May. He used a range master into Vox AC30s and he had his Vox AC30s modified so that all the tone knobs would actually be taken out of the circuit. So it was just volume and he would plug a range master into the front end of that and just crank it up, crank the amp up, crank the treble booster up. And that was the sound that we hear, which is, which is such a great sound because his solos or even his rhythm parts, they almost have this screaming like quality that just always seem like they're on the verge of feedback. And there's something so touch sensitive and edgy about it that you can only get with a treble booster. You'll know when you get one and crank it through an amp that it just, there's a symbiotic thing that happens and the way it works with sustain, it's not like as compressed of a sustain as a distortion or a fuzz pedal is. It leaves your, the initial transient of the signal intact and the decay tends to be a little more natural in the note. It doesn't just feel like it's infinite sustain and almost feels a lot more of the type of sustain that you get from a cranked amp but a range master paired with a cranked amp really just creates a, a quite a, an interesting sustain. And there is a controversy about the range master. The analog man range master is called the Beano Boost, and that is in reference to the Beano record. It was nicknamed the Beano record because there was a picture of Clapton on the back of the cover, and he was reading a comic, and I think the comic had Beano on the title. You know, people have for a long time now rumored that he used a treble booster on that record, a Les Paul treble booster and Marshall Bluesbreaker amplifier, but I don't believe that to be the case. He has stated on numerous occasions that never happened. There's pictures from the sessions that never show a range master. The thing about that record is that is what a Marshall Bluesbreaker amplifier, which is a combo, sounds like with a Les Paul in it. If you crank the amp all the way up on 10. That is actually that sound, that sustain, that virtual feedback sound that he was getting. It was just the combination that it wasn't actually a range master. Now range masters can, with the right configuration, get close to that sound, they can imply that. So I could see why people think that they may be the case and think that Clapton just isn't telling the truth or doesn't remember. I believe he remembers, I believe he wasn't using one on it. But 
if you want to create some of those sounds, you can actually use the Range Master or the Beano Boost Analog Man to imply those tones. It does do a really good job of doing that if you can't plug Les Paul PAFs into a Marshall Blues Picker combo and crank it, which most of the times we can't. Now let's talk about the Analog Man Beano Boost now. If you've listened to my vlog on the Sunface pedal that I did on Analog Man, you know I'm a big fan of Analog Man's pedals because he spends so much time on the details and really making sure that he gets them to sound correct. Now, this is no exception to it. This is my favorite Range Master boost pedal. He really nailed the sound of it. And one thing he did I like is that he added a dip switch that in the center position, you can have it just the regular Range Master sound, which would be the cut bass and just the natural mid boost. You could flip it up for a different range of mid-range boost. So I think it maybe makes it a little throatier, probably like a lower mid-range, maybe below 1000K somewhere. It's allowing a bit of a boost there as opposed to, I think like the 1K and up mid-range boost that happens naturally on the Range Master. And there's also a switch to turn it down for low-end boost, which is full range boost, which is like the Tommy Iommi Black Sabbath vibe. So you can get the Black Sabbath vibe you could get the Brian May vibe out of this. You could sort of get the Mark Boland thing going. You can get all the, the eras of the Range Master happening just from this one pedal because otherwise it's a real simple pedal. It's one knob on it and you just turn it up until it makes your amp cook. Uh, I had one other modification done, or I, I should say uh, an addition to the boost pedal is that I have it mine set up so that if you turn the knob all the way left, you hear it click. And what that does is it turns the pedal off. So if I have it on a pedal board, then I don't have to unplug the right jack so it doesn't suck the power from the battery. I could simply just turn the knob down and it is out of the circuit. The amplifiers that you pair with the Pino Boost do become pretty important. Now, they don't work the best into a clean amp. I'm not saying they can't work, but plugging it into a Fender reverb or a deluxe reverb and having the volume fairly low tends to not be the most flattering sound with a treble booster. Some people have purchased them and then plugged them into a clean amp, like maybe even a Mesa Boogie, a high watt clean amp, and, and just wonder like what, what the fuss was about them. They sold them quick because they didn't find a way to make it work. Part of the magic of getting the treble boosters and the Beano Boost to work is to run them into a hot amp. Particularly British amps work well with this. So Vox, AC30s, Marshall, Plexis, any kind of Marshall that has some gain on it. Tweed fenders work really, really well because they break up in a flattering way. The black panel fenders, silver panel fenders, they don't always sound the best with a treble booster. If you can get a Princeton on like eight or seven and then combine it with the Pino Boost, it can actually work really well, but it's not gonna work as well on three or, or two. British amps tend to break up a lot quicker than the American or California circuits do, particularly the styles from the mid 60s on. So to get the sound right, you wanna have your amp cook in, and you want an amp that breaks up pretty nicely, then you'll turn the trouble booster on and crank it up and you'll just start hearing the sustain more. Now, if you can't crank your amp up, there is one way to get around this. You could put an overdrive pedal after it. Now, this is where I get really particular about the overdrive pedal because hitting a, a solid state pedal with this much gain that, that comes out of the trouble booster, it is a hot pedal. It is not subtle when it goes on. 
it isn't going to always sound good with a solid state pedal. I use the Effectro tube drive because it's a full tube pedal. So it actually acts like the tubes in an amplifier. And what I can do is I can hit the tube drive hard with the treble booster, and then I can turn the output down lower on the tube drive and just hit the amp at a normal volume. And if I wanted to switch between those sounds, I could place those two pedals in a true bypass loop and turn them both on off in one shot and stay at the same volume, which is not something you'd be able to do normally with just the treble booster in your signal chain because the volume variances. So by using the Analog Man Beano Boost into the Effectro tube drive, linking them up through a true bypass looper, I could have the classic Black Sabbath or Brian May sound and then turn it off and have the regular clean sound on my amplifier be matched in volumes. You could try it with some solid state pedals and you might find one that works well, but don't expect it to work quite as well as it would with a tube based pedal. Let's listen to some examples using the Analog Man Beano Boost. I'm gonna start out using a Gibson SG with Gemini Mercury One humbuckers in it. I'm just gonna run straight into the Beano Boost and that's gonna go into the Vox AC15 now. Just a couple of things about my setup. One thing I'm using is I'm using an Ampete 88S amp switcher. This is like the brain of my guitar amp studio and I use it all the time and it's an incredibly powerful tool. Basically, what it is, it's an amp and cab switcher. So I have a bunch of amplifiers set up on shelves, Marshall, Ampeg, Fox, Tweed fenders, black panel fenders. I've got a variety of amps set up here for when I record. I do a lot of recording sessions for other people, for myself, and it's helpful to be able to try out different sounds because as I'm overdubbing guitars, I don't just like to use the same guitar all the time. So what the Ampete 88S allows me to do is it allows me to use different heads with different cabinets. Now, sometimes I use the Universal Audio Aux, which is a cabinet simulator, just because I'm living in an apartment in New York City and I can't always record my amps on. So I choose the amplifier head that I want, which I'll use the Vox and it'll send it to the Aux. I could then immediately switch to the Marshall and send it to the Aux. I don't have to get behind the amplifier and, and mess with any cabling or anything. And I could very quickly is, or as easily be able to send the Vox to the Vox speakers in the Vox cabinet if I want to mic it when that's acceptable. But the point of being able to easily switch through a variety of amplifiers I have really streamlines my guitar recording process and really allows me to try a bunch of different combinations that I might be discouraged in trying on a, on a session when the clock is running or you know, just didn't have as much time a deadline as is running down. But now having the MP88S, I'm really able to just like jump through different amplifiers and find the combination which is right because that's really helpful because sometimes just changing the amplifier really makes the sound work. So again, signal chain, SG, Beano Boost, and it's going to go into the Ampete, and then I go to the various amplifiers, which I'm going to use in the example. So the first one is just the SG into the Vox with the Beano Boost, and uh, I kept it dry just so you could really hear how the pedal is working. <laughs>
This next one is just a different style riff using the same configuration. Let's compare the Vox AC15 with the Beano off, and then I'll turn the Beano on so you can hear not only the volume jump, but also the difference in saturation. I'm going to turn the toggle switch up so we're getting more of a mid-range boost out of it, like I was mentioning, between 500 and 1K. I'm going to place the toggle switch in the middle, which would be the normal range master position. Now I'm moving the toggle switch into the bass boost section, which is also the full range option. I think one thing you'll notice from the examples so far is that with the treble booster circuit, all the notes come through pretty even. So it's not like certain pitches are getting pushed out. And that's, you'll notice happens with a fuzz sometimes, the low notes will take over and you just won't get 
um, a full, I don't know, picture of all the notes in a chord. But with a treble booster, it's almost so clean. It's a very clean distortion. And also I think there's a nice attack to it. And I know I mentioned that earlier, but in this next example where I played a lead line, I think you'll hear how it always feels like it's on the cusp of feeding back, but also there's a clarity in the attack of all the notes. Let's listen. switch to a Les Paul into a Marshall Plexi. Again, I'm using the Amp-P88S to switch to the different amplifiers. I had a pretty fair amount of gain set up on the Marshall, and then it's just the Les Paul with Voodoo 59 pickups into the Beano Boost, which is up pretty hot, into the Marshall. Actually, I am using one other device in this. I'm using a full-tone tube tape echo for the slap back, and that is after the amplifier. So I'm not hitting the front end with the echo. That's after the amplifier. Let's listen to it first without the Beano boost. <laughs> I'm going to kick in the Beano Boost now. switch to a Stratocaster with FSC 59 single coil pickups in it. I'm going to add the Surfy Bear Spring Reverb after the full tone tube tape echo just for a little more space.
Now I'm going to switch to a Victoria 35115, which is a Tweed Fender Pro circuit. example I'm going to play a grungy like guitar part using the Stratocaster into the Victoria 35 115 Pro with the Bino Boost pretty hot I hope you enjoyed that tour through the Rangemaster circuit using the Analog Man Bino Boost pedal. It's one of my favorite sounds and I use it a lot in recordings. It also helps really put the guitar to focus. So sometimes when you record guitars, there's a lot of information in the low end that muddies up the mix. And sometimes by just using the Bino Boost to help get your gain and saturation that way, it just really cuts through the mix in a really nice way. I recommend using the Analog Man Bino Boost as opposed to a Vintage Range Master because those old units just sit on top of the amp with just a little switch that you have to flick on and off to have it in and out of your signal chain where the Bino Boost, it's in a nice MXR style size pedal. You could turn it on and off if you're not using it. It's a little bit more practical. It doesn't have a cable hardwired to it. So it's a little easier to use in modern times. Thanks for joining me for episode 13 of Anatomy of Guitar Tone. If anyone's interested in any lessons, whether it be composition, or guitar playing, or bass playing, or drumming, music theory, I'm available. You can reach out to me at anatomyofguitartone.com, as well as if anybody needs string arrangements on any pieces of music or production, engineering, I do a lot of that stuff as well as session work and I license music as well to film and TV. So uh, if you are interested in anything that I'm doing, you can reach out to me and uh, we'll chat. I'm gonna leave you with a song this week from Abby Ahmed's new record called Tea With Shadows. It's a song called Somewhere In Between. This song features a lot of Mellotron in it.
Follow